sick days. Sick days? Yeah. You were like, do you imagine having a normal job and having to take sick days? Right. You probably, be- yeah, you probably didn't get a lot of sick days. There are no sick days. None? No. All right. You don't take sick days in the NFL. I guess that's fair. Yeah, you're, you're out there ready to go. I'm sure at some point you probably had to play a little under the weather, right? Oh, you come in just like she did. Oh. Kathleen came in in Canton where you're just death. Yeah. And you're walking in. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. What, I mean, what do you do? Do you do you eventually start feeling better during the game, or you just kind of have to power through it? Like, does the adrenaline start to make you feel better? Or no, I mean, you just kind of power through that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I remember I'm like having the flu and my back. I had sprained my lower left lumbar in training camp, so we're in a preseason game, and you basically just don't want to talk to anybody. You listen to the play, you run the play, and that's it. And Greg Gaither, who's one of our trainers, who's still there. He would come over. He goes, "How you doing?" I'm just give him a nod, like I don't care. <laughs> he, just get me goes, through the next few hours. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that was you pushed through it, man. That's it. This is Real News Talk. We bring you the hottest topics, conversation, and digital radio entertainment, all at the speed of news. And now, here's your host. Um, first off, thanks for sitting down with us. I guess I should. I guess I should introduce you. Welcome to Real News Talk. I'm Zach Lewis. Uh, Matt sitting, Stoker, sitting here with Matt Stoker, <laughs> and we are joined by one Corey Proctor. Corey, welcome to the show. Thank you. For, for people who, for people who may not know who you are, real quick, give us a brief rundown. Who is Corey Proctor? Corey Proctor, the man. I, mean, I always want to roll into like the uh, the Friday Night Lights thing. It's, you know, Jonathan Mox is only one man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just want to thank God. <laughs> Scary superstar. And my country. <laughs> right. But, uh, no, okay, so my background, I'm originally from Washington State, Seattle area. Moved all around there, but I played six years in the NFL. Mm-hmm. As an offensive line, lineman, mostly with the Dallas Cowboys, a little bit with the Detroit Lions and Miami Dolphins. Right. Now, Matt and I are both phenomenally seasoned in sports. We both know exactly <laughs> what we're talking about. Um, but I wanted to kind of dig into this a little bit. Let's start with your background and move forward, all right? You grew up, or at least I know you went to high school in Gig Harbor, Washington. You yes. said you're from Seattle. You moved around a little bit. Uh, what was that like? Moved around a whole lot. You know, it's just a, it's not a, a bad look at my parents, but they decided to split early. Okay. And we did the carousel of moving around with them and spending time with mom or dad, my brothers and I. So we went to a whole lot of different schools, and we landed in Gig Harbor, Washington, where my mom remarried. Got a whole bunch more step siblings, and it was it was an experience. But that's where I ended up going to high school, was Gig Harbor High School in Gig Harbor, Washington, and ultimately that's where you know launched from there. Right, you were locked down for a few years there. Yes. When did you start getting into football? Seventh grade. Okay. My first year. I figured it would have been like a flag football, like young kind of thing. No, I, I before that it was soccer, t-ball. I was really bad at that. Yeah. It's like T-ball, I'd hit the T. I struck out in T-ball. <laughs> it's impossible. They give you seven strikes. It's a tough game. Oh, hey, same way. yeah. <laughs> a lot of coordination there. My parents thought I was I was set for Little League uh, baseball, and I hated it. I got hit with a ball like one of the first times, and I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm, right. I'm done with it. This right. isn't baseball is not for me. I played soccer for a while, but baseball was not my Too much not my running sport. in soccer. Yeah. I, I was a lot of running in soccer, yeah. I was one of those kids. My parents were like, you're going to try swimming, soccer, t-ball, everything, and I, I was never into any of it. I actually started football in seventh grade, too, but it wasn't, wasn't for me. It's not for everybody, and I wanted to ask about that. Did you ever, I don't know, did you grow up, like, were you growing up, were you just like a tall kid? Did you feel like football is where you wanted to be, or did you just try it to see what happens? Not necessarily, right. I, that was just to try and see what happens. I got, yeah. I got a growth spurt in 
middle school, kind of or, or late elementary school, and all of a sudden, I remember sitting on the couch eating my Doritos, and my legs would just <laughs> ache. I was a fat kid, man. Yeah. I was a little chubby kid, but I would just ache. It would hurt. My body would hurt when it was going through that growth spurt. And seventh grade, got an invite to play football, and that was just kind of like, okay, right. do that, and end up leading down a path that was a whole lot greater. But well, I was just, yeah, it wasn't any burning desire. Moving around a lot, did you did you have friends that were getting into it, or was it just like, yeah, I don't know, you wanted to meet people? Where, where, where were you with that? With football? Yeah, seventh grade. I mean, you were moving around. Was it new kids? Did you not know anybody? I didn't know anybody, really. All right. I mean, I had, yeah, generally you meet some people in your classes, and that's okay, but I didn't have any relationships sure you know any good friends you had some good friends you move away by the time you made a friend you'd move away that's right. where we were at right. and come to this new place and get invited to play football you know that kind of put me in a football family in a, in a good group to help mold me a little bit and really develop some of those relationships so someone saw the big kid in class and said that guy probably ought to be out on the football field or something like that yeah and then me the dope because okay <laughs> I'll do that. Point right. me in the direction, coach. <laughs> sure. Whatever. What, what position did you play? Where'd you start? What I wanted to play was quarterback. Of course. Doesn't everybody. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that, of course. But again, I was the biggest guy on the field, and they coach sees that and was like, all right, now I, got, I see a guy who can pave some ways for me. Yeah. So I'm going to put him with a lineman. So that was really good. And actually, I did. I remember seventh grade, I played a little bit of running back that year, too. Okay. And that was all that was was filling in on a drill. They needed to run it back, and I bowled over a couple of guys. And that was like the first real positive reinforcement that I had from coaches. Like, good job, Corey, slap on the butt and, and do well. Right. And I, that was like a piece of chocolate to me. Right. I'm like, all of a sudden, I wanted more of that. Oh, sure. Right? So I, and all you had to do was run into people. Did they yeah. not want you to play running back anymore, or was it just a... I had a couple carries in some games, but I was still the chubby kid. <laughs> right. I remember them calling a sweep. They gave me a sweep one time, so they tossed me the ball, and I ran, and I got hit so hard, and it knocked the wind out of my belly, and that was the weirdest feeling in the world to me. But, you know, when everybody's attacking you, it's a totally different story. Mm -hmm. Right. It's funny, yeah, when I was in... Once again, when I was in seventh grade, I was the chubby kid. And, yeah, I remember we had a day when they st stood everybody around and said, all right, let's see who can knock who over. Who's, who's the tackler and who's the person who gets tackled? And I, was, I was the guy that got tackled. That was it. That was the end, end of my football career. Um, you were twice named uh, the team MVP. I don't, I don't know if that's a position that often goes to linemen. So, I guess, is it? And, and, and what was that like? I mean, how did that happen? You'd well, think it'd be like a QB kind of thing. Yeah, a lot of times it does. Yeah. Right, to the natural leaders of the team. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, you see team captains, MVPs, a lot of that stuff happens just because you are in that leadership role. You're the one commanding the huddle and running the team, the vocal guy a lot of times. Uh, but that, for me, I was not that vocal guy. I was, you know, I stood my ground on where I was, but because I fed off that reinforcement I got from coaches, off just working hard and running hard and showing up, like it would, you could have a real big impact on me when you when you wanted to put me down a little bit at the time. I was really influential that way, where, sure. or influenced that way by my coaches. And uh, I mean, one specific time where my grades were getting down, and coach saved me for last. And like this guy, because I was a standout, he was like, this guy had a one point nine. I couldn't believe it, and I felt like I was an inch tall in the room, <laughs> right? And I'm supposed to be this big stud guy on the team. And but anyways, that came along because. I fed off that positive stuff so much that I would show up in the weight room all the time. And that made me work so much harder because I wanted you to see that. Right. And I wanted that. I fed off that a whole lot. So, you know, lifting weights, conditioning on the field, 
in practice running harder. I did everything more than anyone else just because I wanted you to see that and tell me good job. And it, it paid off. Yeah, is that is yeah. that the way you tend to be in life? Like you re respond to positive reinforcement more than someone saying, what an idiot, like knock it <laughs> off, quit being stupid. Right. <laughs> I, I'm always curious about that, that kind of stuff. Uh, yes and no, right? So yes, I love it. Everybody loves that good word. Yeah. Um, now where I've gotten to the point where I know what that hard work looks like and I know what that kind of effort or what a job deserves, what kind of effort deserves to put into a job. So I know what that is. Maybe I don't figure it out right away, but I know what kind of effort I'm putting into that and what kind of attention and focus goes into that. So like I can put into that and know that I'm giving the right kind of stuff and I don't necessarily need you to see that, but now I can, I've been able to turn that around where I can bring your attention to it. You can self-regulate a little bit on that on some of that stuff. Right. Yeah. Before we move on to college, I wanted to ask about something else you did in high school. You were also twice named team MVP on the wrestling team. You were in wrestling. Love wrestling. Okay, let's talk about that. You love wrestling. Um, why'd you get into wrestling? Because it's a different one. It's different. Like it's a little bit more close contact. It's a little bit more <laughs> kind of feel span the not, I don't want to say spandex, <laughs> but like no, no, no. I guess the question is, like, you were clearly good at it, and you had to go with one. Why'd you stick with football instead of wrestling? Yeah, that was – there's more opportunity there. Okay. I think. Yeah. And I had – I started – I got into wrestling just because my football coach in seventh grade said, "I if you guys want to do another sport, I recommend wrestling, especially for you linemen, for you big guys. Because it'll help you out. Yeah. Yeah. Just become and, – and that's even been more reinforced – by a lot of different studies that have come out, right? You, Nick Saban came out with a great one just by his, his scholarship athletes at Alabama. He yeah. multi The athletes that he recruited out of high school were always way more likely to get a scholarship when they were multi-sport athletes and not specialty guys. Really? At a, at a high school. I would think the exact opposite. Yeah, I think if, if you're all in on football, that's your thing. Like, that guy knows football. But, yeah, I guess I can get behind that. Yeah, no, it, but it was, uh, it was good. So I started off from that. And same kind of thing, just kind of feeling my way through it and started liking it. And then when we moved, I did it seventh grade year, and uh, we, we moved, same thing, we moved around a little bit, went in, into Gig Harbor High School. And my O-line coach in freshman year was a wrestling coach at the time, too. Raul and Sarah. He was a short little Greek dude who was <laughs> jacked. And his inspirational stories made absolutely no sense. Yeah. But they were awesome. Sure. I can get behind that. Did you like high school? Did you did you enjoy your time in high school? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it was it was a challenge, nonetheless, because we were still new. Mom had a new marriage and had step siblings that we're getting used to. I didn't ever had sisters before, so that was an adjustment. Yeah. For us, but uh, but it was a lot of fun just because I had good people around me and had a positive feedback on those. I I, so I say I fed off those teachers that, and yeah. coaches. Was there a point in there where you? I'm I'm curious where along the line did you say I'm going to continue with football as far as I can take this or was there a point in high school where you were thinking if I, if this doesn't pan out what am I going to do next and what were your plans after that I had no plans zero I was surprised I remember sophomore year I was surprised uh, when I got any sort of all area or all league you know uh, record record what the heck why am I blanking all on league the word? all area all, all state all northwest yeah I got you covered I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah but I got a little bit of recognition from yeah. you know publications and I'm like all right that's cool and then junior year got a whole bunch of stuff yeah and all I did was work hard what I thought yeah. I was feeding off you and all this other stuff came from it 
And, you know, so, okay, now that I get, I start getting a bunch of letters from schools and attention from recruiters. And that's really what started. And I had some for wrestling, but the big bulk was for football. So that's where I focused on. Right. Yeah, yeah I'm sure there are some kids that, that get started in football. I'm sure there are some kids that think I'm going to, you know, they get started on day one and think I'm going to be in the NFL. But I imagine most people are, are saying, I mean, I'm, I'm doing this now, but I don't, I don't, I don't know where this is going to lead. And that snowball just starts to build and build and build until one day you realize I, I'm actually pretty good at this thing. And, and other people <laughs> think I'm pretty good at this thing and maybe I can do something with it. Right. And then it shifts. So we're talking about now we can self-regulate a little bit. Yeah. All right. I know I'm good at this or I know what kind of effort to put into this. And now we can pursue it a little harder and a little more focused in that. So I got the same thing happened when I got to college. I love to go to the pro days just to see it. Right. Huh. Just to, I remember freshman year going to watch uh, Thatcher's Zalay, who was who was uh, looking to make the league as an offensive lineman, big old burly dude and thought this was really cool. And I didn't think necessarily I was going to the league I just fed off the guys around me and I that's not what I was my, my goal wasn't league I said that that would be cool right but I knew this is this is where I was at home was with you guys with with my team mm-hmm. so so of all these letters you got you settled on University of Montana yeah buddy well Grizz. I mean you'd be you'd been in Washington why what what about Montana stood out to you well I had uh, a lot of division one interest at first and I had an early offer from BYU that fell flat because I had a, a knee scope my senior year during the season, kind of slowed me down a little bit. So a lot of Division One interest fell off, and a lot of those one AA schools came on. And a lot of the big sky. So, you know, I took four different visits during wrestling season, so I didn't like missing any practice. And um, Montana ended up being it because we'd gone fishing through that. Dad would take us fishing, my brothers and oh, I. Oh, okay, yeah. And so we knew the lay of the land a little bit. But we, but I showed up there for my visit, and my flight was canceled getting in and going out of Missoula for wow. my, my visit. And on a Saturday, I remember the uh, the lady who was meeting to talk about the education. Sure. Right? She showed up on a Saturday morning. She was supposed to go skiing to meet with me. Oh, wow. Like, that stood out. Yeah. Like, easy, somebody could like, – I'm not going to meet this kid. He's just another recruit, right? That stood out to me. And then when it got canceled leaving out, Joe Glenn, who was our head coach – invites me over to his house to hang oh. out with his family. So that's, like, that pretty much sealed the deal for you, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was – they made me feel at home, and I got excited and jacked for it. Right. So so freshman year, you start at U- University of Montana. You start as a right tackle. Sophomore year, you moved to left guard, other side. And then junior year, you bounced back to right tackle. Why the bouncing around? Was it was it a coach thing? Was it just like, this is where I need you, bud? Or did you want to move? I mean, what was it? Coach thing. Okay. We had – Joe Glenn was there my freshman, sophomore year – we had four other excellent linemen. I told you that Thatcher's delay. He was a left guard at the time. He ended up leaving. So we had some big dudes on the line. He moved me to left guard, did really well. Sophomore year, uh, junior year, we had a coaching change. Bobby Houck took over the team. Joe Glenn went to Wyoming. And so they had some different philosophies. Right. Like, all right, we want our best athletes at tackle, not at guard necessarily. And flopped us around a little bit. And, and it, that was a struggle too because then we, you know, now we're just di- different regime we're dealing with and uh and so we had bobby Houck was junior senior year and then left for the league how hard is it to deal with coaching changes and things like that is that does that completely upend uh, everything that's going on or do you guys just try to kind of roll with it or how does how does that work it depends on the coach yeah i mean it, it, every problem is a leadership problem right you can if i'm under you working you can develop me into something a whole lot so you know the result of good leadership is like how how many leaders have you created 
for yourself. Like you could easily have a boss, how many people have left the job, not necessarily because they were bad, but because they excelled at their position and got raises or promotions or other opportunities that really called them out, right? That's a good leader. So those are tough and it depends on the coach. So we had Parcells left here in Dallas and Wade Phillips took over. I loved him because he really poured into the individual and he really liked you personally as a man when you take care of your business. Mm -hmm. um, it was tough in in Montana. Joe Glenn was like a Wade Phillips type where he loved you and we had some you know hard-nosed coaches who knew how to get in your face and scream, but Joe Glenn knew how to support you, pack you on the back, and it's like, all right, let's go. And Bobby Houck was complete opposite, opposite of that. You know, he was the one who'd come in and MF you a little bit. <laughs> and uh, and yeah. in the tough love, which I've had plenty, but we had a whole mess of guys on that coaching staff that were exactly that. So it was – I got at times, and they were fine. They did That was kind of them, I think, establishing themselves the first year at Montana. But they released off of that a little bit my senior year. And I like the guys. I, you know, I'd had so many coaches like that. I got sick of it as, at some point because I knew how to handle my business. You know, guys who don't know how to work hard, you get on them. But at the same time, I still have th stuff that sticks out from those guys. You know, big thing from them, I remember Dave Schramm was our O-line coach. You know, I yelled at our backup guys one time during camp, and he pulled me aside. He's like, don't yell at your guys. Leave that to the coaches. You know, you're the family. You pick them up. And that stuck with me a whole lot since because I carried that into the league. No. And other, you know, you see other quarterbacks screaming at their receivers or the linemen. I'm like, what are you doing? Right? The coach is going to do plenty of that. I'm like, don't scream at each other. That yeah, causes right. They don't dissent. need you as well. I get that. I, I like what you say about leadership because I, I do find, and it may be unfair sometimes, but I do find a lot in sports when a team is doing poorly that all the attention gets paid to the coach and they're usually the ones that has to, that has to pay for it. They're the ones that gets bounced out. And... I, sometimes I think, well, that doesn't seem right because maybe they just didn't have a good team or, or maybe whatever, a hundred different reasons. But I, I see what you're saying about how a good coach could probably take a bad team and make them better, but a bad coach is not going to lead a great team anywhere. True. It's totally true. And it's, you can have – I mean, great coaches have had bad teams. Mm -hmm. right? But all right, how did you build on that? And who were the people that you identified like this is a key guy I need? Right? I need you to stay with me somehow. And – uh, Jerry did that with Jason Garrett, right? He was like, all right, and he hired him before Wade Phillips even. He was like, I, I want this kind of attitude on my team. This is someone I value, so I need to grab him up while he's available. And coaches will do that as much as possible. Now it's not always viable to keep somebody because there's bigger opportunities out there for them. But, you know, uh, you can lose. And it's tough because you've seen good coaches come through bad programs. You know, that just have, weren't able to get something going for whatever reason. Doesn't make him a bad coach necessarily, but you see a lot of good stuff coming from like Mike Holmgren. See all the people that came off him from Green Bay. Mm -hmm. Right, there was a lot of them. Yeah, and they show that. I don't know if you see, remember that picture? ESPN would always show the staircase picture of all the different coaches they had in Green Bay at the time that are all head coaches. Now oh, I haven't, seen, I haven't seen, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. You can look that up, but it's but that's a great indicator of good leader. Is all right. What kind of essentially disciples have they made in their area that went on to do bigger things right speaking of wisconsin your first kind of foray into the nfl formally was with the detroit lions right in 2005 you were signed as an undrafted free agent you were waived and later re-signed to the team's practice squad before the start of the season what was that like i mean was it was it bittersweet it seems like a sweet deal getting into the nfl but at the same time like i don't know yeah what do you what do you think the first one 
in right. Detroit, right? Getting getting cut and re-signed. Yeah. That's what you're talking about. That it's weird. It's weird. So I'm used to winning at this point. Yeah. In my career. Most of these guys who enter the league are used to winning at the position. They've always been kind of a top dog and where they've been. And now I come in, I'm not performing well. For some reason it doesn't click always right away for some guys. And it didn't for me. So I, I, they loved me because of my work ethic, and that was great. But my play, now we're coming down to actual performance-based where we got to make decisions. And I wasn't there yet. So they cut me. I'm a big baby. I'm balling, right? I, and, hey, I get it. And, uh, and Pat Morris was my line coach at the time who, who lets me know, but he was cool. He goes, I get it. I'm glad you're emotional because that means you cares. You care, right? He goes – I want to bring you back on practice squad because I want to keep developing you as a player because I, I value what you're bringing, your work ethic. Um, so because I don't know 100% what's going to happen over this next week when they were developing rosters. It was, but I ended up right back there, and they guaranteed my year on the practice squad. Now I ended up going to Dallas, but you know they, that's a nod of appreciation and value to you. When they cut you, though, was that thought in your head that it's over, everything I've worked towards, this was my shot, and it didn't work out? It's not quite that. I mean, it's this hanging phase. Yeah. Like you get fired. Like I don't know you guys, but if you guys have been fired from a job, but all of a sudden you're in this. What do I do now? Right. Right. And that's where I was at. So I had an '86 Fleetwood Cadillac at the time. <laughs> it was loaded down. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and I drove that baby back to Montana right away and sat there until uh, my agent got me a workout with Atlanta and they ended up working out a guarantee for the year on practice squad with Detroit. So I drove right back to Detroit and ended up being there. But it, it's just this empty feeling of what do I do? I, I don't know. And luckily it happened fast enough where I can get with the team, but you, it, that doesn't quite flash through your head right away. Yeah. Right. The turnaround from the Lions to the Cowboys was stark. It was later that year. It was the same year you get signed to the Cowboys. I mean, just like that. That must have been the exact opposite feeling. It must have been like elation. It must have been incredible, right? Just to be like, all right, I'm off the stupid practice squad. Finally, you know, I'm, I'm going to get somewhere. What was that like? It's more like a little girl screaming inside okay. of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Sure. Why not? I mean, come on. It's like you have this massive I, – I got used to the practice squad where I'm not playing. I'm practicing. I'm lifting weights. I'm doing everything that I enjoy. But you don't have the pressure of playing mm -hmm. and performing now. So they, they're loving on me, which is great, but – you know, I just show up to watch the football games. I don't even dress for them at that point. So I get picked up with the Dallas Cowboys. And I remember his buddy, um, one of my coach or players that I hang out with, buddies on the team, he, he goes, when that happened, I'm like, well, dude, I'm going to Dallas. He goes, man, I feel like you're going to play real football. <laughs> like, we don't play real football here in Detroit. Okay? Yeah. You're going to go play for the Cowboys. And so, now, yeah, but now that happened 9 p.m. on a Tuesday night. And I had to catch a 6 a.m. flight out, so I had to pack up my apartment, the little bit that I had, pack all that up, put it in my truck because my Cadillac died on me. But, uh, sure. I, you know, pack it up, leave it there, and fly to, do, to Dallas and practice it. I appreciate that you're able to so accurately remember the time. 9 p.m. Tuesday night. Yep. Like, yeah, what are, I mean, you got to have other moments in your career that are like that, right? When you're just like, oh, man, I'll never forget exactly what I was doing when that happened. I mean, same as, as, as getting signed to the practice squad for the Lions. Yeah. It's like, it hurts. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about kind of your time with the Cowboys. The first two years, you were active for not a whole lot. Like you said, you were kind of just hanging out. Um, what did it feel like when you finally got in there? Was there this big, did it feel like a big leap from college ball to NFL? Or was it kind of the same? I mean, was it, 
when, when did that kind of step up in, in, in difficulty and quality? Was there a point at which it was like, oh, man, this, these guys aren't messing around. You know, they're, they're in it to win it. Or was it always that hard? I mean, what do you think? No, it, there was definitely this point in the league where you're dealing with men. Yeah. They're, they're not kidding. Yeah. No. I mean, <laughs> yeah. full-grown, 350-pound dudes that I can throw you around. You know, we had to – Sean uh, – I'm thinking that big old, big old Sean. He went went to Cleveland Pro Bowler. We had at Detroit for a long time. Sean, that's not Davis, but uh, I don't know. Big yeah. old D tack. This guy's 350, every bit of it, and he throws people around like rag dolls. Oh sure, right. And you have guys like Larry Allen. Same thing. I mean, he's offensive line, but you have these dudes: Flozell Adams, Leonard Davis, Mark Colombo, Andre Girard. These massive guys that you're around all the time. You're like, I gotta block these kind of guys. Those are offensive line, but I, I like look at. Those guys on the opposite end, ends of the line, they're like, I gotta block this. I remember watching um, Griffin was one of the D tackles for the Redskins at the time, and watching film all week. This is 2008. I'm starting most of the year at left guard, and you watch film all day. You prep for him. It's all good. And I remember the first snap out of the huddle, we have a, a slide slide pass protection. It's like 135, and they come out in this under front, which is means I got a one on one the first play. And I break the huddle and turn around and look at this guy. And I'm like, oh, my God, that guy is massive. Yep. Way bigger than he was on film. Mm. Right? So, yeah. but, I, but I coming out, and it's like this geeked up, like freak out moment where, all right, like I, everything's tensed up in my body. I better punch the living crap out of this guy right now or something bad's going to happen all game long. Right. And I got to set a tone. And if I don't do it, and I, I lose a little, lose a little uh, technique to do that, but – I'm gonna take a swing at you. <laughs> it's it's such a unique dynamic, especially uh, in 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 the pros. Whenever you think when you're in high school, you're playing against guys that are around your same age and developmentally, college the same way. But in, when you reach the pros, I mean, you could be playing against guys who've been playing pro football since you were in high school, and that's a huge difference when it comes to talent and and experience and all sorts of other things. It's huge. I mean, you should get, like uh, Michael Strahan was. One of those big guys, the veterans at the end of his career, who yeah. just expose rookies big time, right? Because you have a guy that's playing really well against a second, third, fourth year guy, even. But hold up, get five, six, seven, eight year guy who's been seasoned and seen a lot of that stuff, and he can throw them around. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it's a really bad day. And that's, you know, I had some of that with, uh, with some rushers like Justin Tuck. I remember that guy was like Gumby blocking him that was a tough one but uh you know some of these guys that that knew how to work that that was that was rough days but um you know if you came to work you're gonna have some wins in there too yeah one of the things one of the movies sports movies i've always really enjoyed is uh adam sandler's seminal masterpiece the water boy in that movie adam sandler's trick to knocking people down is imagining they're a certain person that he doesn't like or saying something he doesn't agree with and then he knocks him over you had anything like that any kind of mental tricks to just get on top of somebody climb that mountain <laughs> or was it just I got to knock that guy down? Let's do it. You know, I mean, where were you? Yeah, some guys would have that. Yeah. You know, I mean, you got to And really, that kind of stuff I think is born from the purpose you're playing the game, or or finding your reasoning for getting up and doing what you're doing every day. Yeah, right. I'm mean, like, if I'm imagining a guy that's like cussing about my mom or my wife, I'm like, that's kind of the person why I'm playing the game. Mm -hmm. I right? don't come at them or someone right. I love like that. Sure. And I'm playing for them. So I think that's kind of where that's born. But I, I had, I guess, some of that a little bit. But I would get cranked up when somebody would start talking to me. Like, you start talking trash to me. And I just, like, flipped you on your side. 
and you start talking to me like, man, I remember one guy from Cleveland. He would cuss at you all game long, and I'm like, you're a backup. Like '91, <laughs> he actually lives in town here. We've done some events with him, and I'm like, no dude, offense. you talk right now as much as you do. You did playing the game, and I'm like, and I'm like, you didn't do anything, right? Like you looped outside. You need you ran contain, and you didn't do anything on that play, and you're talking trash over nothing. And I, so I would try to take shots on those guys all the time. Did that stuff ever throw you off? Did that that trash talk ever get in your head, or did you? compartmentalize that pretty well yeah i compartmentalize that pretty well there was some weird stuff that would be said and obviously i can't say it all like sure. i want to yeah. right? like <laughs> but, we want you to yeah <laughs> but uh you know, there were some phrases that would come out that would catch you off guard like that was kind of cool like i like that <laughs> where did that it even was, come yeah. from sick burn yeah. yeah um yeah and that was something i wanted to inquire about was the uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, tra- trash talk, right, but between teams. I assume that probably happens in between the snap, right, when you're all lined up, ready to go. I'm sure somebody probably – or is everybody a professional? Is everybody quiet and they, they go for it, or is there a little bit of banter there when there's no mics around and the cameras are far away and nobody can hear you? Oh, sure, there's some. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, There's they, always some guy who's got something to say. Yeah, there's always something. I mean, you get a move. It's Typically, it doesn't start right away in the game. Right, but it's you make a guy making a move on you, maybe getting a little bit of an edge, yeah, or something, and they start chirping a little bit. <laughs> so like, I'm gonna get you on that, right? This yeah. is about little things. I'm gonna get you on that, or uh, or like that next time I'm gonna get home, yeah, right. I'm like, don't don't worry about that. You know, I don't yeah. know. I'm I, my comebacks were never fantastic, right, right. But in the heat of the moment, you always thought they were great, because <laughs> you, know, you cuss right back at him. Yeah, like, I'm not gonna cuss right him. now, but I'm like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's what you get, chump. And <laughs> right. I'd be telling somebody after the game, I'm like, dude, I had this great comeback, and I would replay it and say it. I'm like, it wasn't that cool. Yeah. I'm like, it sounded way cooler in my head. Well, at the I end of the day, it matters who's on the floor, right? That's that's <laughs> that's the ultimate comeback. Um, yeah, it's one of those things I've always been curious about. I mean, I'm all for sportsmanlike contact, con- conduct, but when it comes down to it, when all the guys are lined up, yeah, somebody's got something to say, I'm sure. It's so, a whole lot of cuss words. That's what it is. <laughs> whole lot of vulgarity. Well, it's yeah. good to know that's that's alive and well in American sports. In 2010, just shy of five years with the Cowboys, because you came in in November, you left in May, you moved to the Dolphins. And on the Dolphins team, this is something I wanted to ask about earlier, uh, you had a former Cowboys coach over there. Yeah. Bill Parcells. Yeah. What was that like? Going over there and being like, oh, hey, I know this guy. Yeah, that would have been a little comforting, right? Well, they actually had a bunch. Okay. Because Bill Parcells, originally Jeff Ireland took the general manager position, mm-hmm. and he was, I think, our head scout with the Cowboys at the time. So he took that over. Bill Parcells went over as executive director, and then he hired Tony Sperano on as his head coach. Yeah. He was our O-line coach in Dallas. So he got the head coaching spot. So there was a lot of Cowboys going on there. And took over there. That was cool. They sold me. I kind of went on a parade of different teams' visits to see who I wanted to play with. And I, I wanted – Initially, I thought I played some of my best football with Sperano and Parcel, so I wanted to get back to that. Well, my body didn't want to handle that at the time, right? Because right? they were just – they're smash mouth, beat you in at training camp. doesn't matter what the weather's like. You're going to die. They're going for it. Yeah. yeah. All right. And uh, so, I mean, it was, it was good, but it was a conflicting time for me because I butted heads a little bit with our O-line coach, uh, Dave DeGugliamos, at the time. And it was, it was a bad attitude on my part. So I didn't come to the table. To, I came to work expecting to start and do all these things. I started a little bit, but you know when we butted heads, I went the wrong way on that on that deal. Like I went against you hard, and where our egos were just clashing, and it hurt, it burned me in the end. Where I played, my feet would be in cement. I played stiff. 
I was screwing it more. I'd screw up, get further in that quicksand where I'm like stiffen up even more and it wasn't good. So, you know, that was a struggle for me. Plus I'd lost a lot of weight. That sun is killer in Miami. Miami. Oh yeah. yeah worse it. than here. Way. Yeah. Way yeah. worse than here. 18 pounds in one practice is way worst. What? Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Lost. How are yeah. you still alive? Yeah. That's, that's some water weight if I've ever heard of it. I, I'm really curious about the day-to-day life of an NFL player. And I, I want to set this up by saying, I mean, you guys are less than 1% of the people who even play football not to mention everybody else in the, in the country. You have a very, very unique and specific job. Um, but also, there are a few people, like you mentioned, the quarterback, the running back. Those are the guys that really get highlighted. Those are the guys that you see everywhere. Those are the guys that are the quote-unquote stars. So I'm curious of what it's like to be in the NFL, but maybe if you're walking down the street, somebody might not necessarily recognize you all the time. Is that a weird feeling, or is it just kind of... I mean, they see a big guy, but they may not assume, oh, clearly that guy plays in the NFL. It's, uh, I'm curious of what that's like. It's Typically, if you travel in the group, you get Sure, I guess if you're right? with it, with everybody, if yeah. you're with the guys, you're good. And I, and I would get recognized. I still get recognized a little bit. Uh, but, yeah, for the most part, you have your helmet on, so not everybody knows your face completely. And it's, it's cool when it happens. Like, it was probably good for me, so I d- it didn't go to my head. <laughs> Right, but uh, I would I would come in, and when it was an event that was obviously everybody knew, and it was announced, it was really cool. But uh, it was never anything crazy. I mean, a lot of people knew. I remember MacArthur Boulevard, where Valley Ranch, where the facility was. Man, I was at every single restaurant up and down that chain, yeah, just because I was single and had no food in my apartment. <laughs> ready to mingle, <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, ready to mingle. I don't know about that, but I, was, yeah, I go to Saltgrass <laughs> sure. Steakhouse, and they would give me like this big beer mug full of milk, yeah, whole milk, and I'd get a big old steak. And the guy knew me. He was like, all right, same thing every time. It's That's awesome. That's all about that protein. Yeah. <laughs> but a, at some level, do you just kind of just treat it like a job? Like, this is what I'm, this is what I'm going to do today. I'm going to go uh, practice, and uh, this, is, this is my 9 to 5, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, I never get – there's some guys that have to be guarded – Right, like, like I, they kind of avoid, like the Michael Irvings maybe where they have to avoid because they can get a crowd around them when, when, you know, if they start engaging people. But uh, that was never really a crazy case for me. So I was out like everybody else eating and doing living my life. And like, yeah, it was just you're there at practice and doing the everyday job. Yeah. I wanted to ask about um, promotional material, which sounds ludicrous, I know, but things like commercials, or even better yet, like during the game, you see on the Jumbotron, like members of the team maybe doing like poses or something, like as you come out. Obviously, you have to go film that stuff. Did you ever take part in things like that? And what's the mindset as a player when you're being filmed for advertising purposes? I mean, are you, are you in the zone? Or are you sitting there like, this is ridiculous? You know, like, I, I, I'm no good at this. <laughs> it's. It, it, again, it depends on who's leading the set, yeah. right? I mean, you you know you have a good all right, producer, director, whoever it is. If they're full of life, they're going to bring that out of you, especially for guys who don't act. No, yeah, right? you're not actors. They're a big bunch of idiots with a big mush, <laughs> mushy brain trying to trying to talk. Sure. And, you know, but if you had that, you know, you, they were able to bring that character out of you. You had a, like a decent character who was in the locker room like to joke around then that came out pretty easy. Now, I remember it was weird. We'd do some of those commercials, and they want you to act, and some guys would be hardcore. Mark Colombo is about hardcore as it gets. Okay. He will be straight-faced the entire time. He had to do a Pepsi commercial one time, and he was <laughs> it's like, I'm Mark Colombo. I play football. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you can dude, show, smile, show your teeth yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And it was almost like Dwight from The Office. He's like, that's a form of submission. 
Right. <laughs> Primates do that. And you're like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> All right. I'm like, stop it. But no, we did a, a promo kind of like, you know, the at baseball games where they do the baseball under the hat and then they mix it around and you got to do pick A, B, or C where the mm-hmm. baseball is at. We did that at Carroll Dragon Stadium for Southlake High School at um, Luber Brothers. Is was a partner with the Cowboys, and we rode these giant lawnmowers, these industrial-sized lawnmowers, and did races. So you had to guess. It was between me, Leonard Davis, Mark Colombo, and Kyle Kozier. So they would do that in the games, and you guess the player who would win each time. And we did that one time. It was like 120 degrees on this turf, <laughs> sweating our butts off. Leonard Davis takes this brand-new mower over to the real grass and starts mowing and turns it on. <laughs> <laughs> And, like, one of the Louvre brothers over here, he's sitting there thinking, that thing's brand new. It's like ten grand for that machine. Yeah. And now i got to put it on as used. Living the dream. <laughs> Just wanted to mow a lawn. Uh, I mean, I, I feel safe saying that you're a pretty friendly, pretty personable guy, but you mentioned Mark Colombo. I imagine you have to have run into some pretty intense or crazy personalities throughout the NFL. What is that like? Like, the, you're, I'm, you seem pretty happy-go-lucky and get along with, with whomever, but... I'm sure you've run into some dudes that are just like, what is your problem, man? Yeah, like, what is that guy's like, deal? Calm down a little bit. Like, we're all just out here, you know, just trying to play a game. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's plenty of those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, we had – there's some guys who straight up bipolar or something, and you knew you could tell by how they walked in to the, to the locker room that day what kind of day it was going to be. Yeah. Uh, Jay Ratliff was one of those guys. You know, he'd walk in and he was like, what's up, Proc? I'm like, cool, man, I like you. We're friends. And the next day he'd walk right by you, not even look at you, I'm like, all right, here we go. We're going to fight today. It's going to be one of those days. And it's, oh, yeah. And so, you know, he was looking for us. It was weird. It was just kind of a – we had lots of those guys that would come in and like, what's wrong with you? He and was, I, you've talked about, you know, leadership. You talked about at the beginning a QB in the position of leadership, a coach in the position of leadership. And, and I want to ask more about that. But any, any – how, do, how does a team stay unified through that? I mean, in the NFL, is it just like, you know what, that's the way he is and it works for him, so we're going to roll with it? Or is it, come on, you gotta, you know, you got to play ball and get, get with the program and get on everybody else's level here? Your leaders have to activate the leaders in the locker room. Okay. Right, so your coach, you got you come to me and say, hey, I got, we got to help this guy out. Right? You get, that's the power of the huddle. That's the group mentality right there is we need him. You need to elevate him somehow and pick him up. So that's the big activation is, okay, you need to go grab around him, talk with him, go to lunch, whatever the case may be, get around these good guys and like, look, let's, let's keep the focus the right way, right, and make sure we're coming to work and not necessarily lose that focus. Where I did it in Miami where, you know, all of a sudden it was me and my thought process and how I need to overcome this and I'm not going to agree with you and your blocking strategy or your schematically what we're doing on offense. And it's, it's none of that because even if I disagree – if I'm not on the same page, it's going to fail. It just is, right? Or one of us is going to fail at some point. Right. And so we got to harness that in. Right. Is there such a thing as just a bad coach? Is there a line where you say, okay, you know what? There's something wrong here, and it's not us, you know? Like, is, is that a problem, or is the coach always right and everybody else needs to get on board? It's tough. It's tough. It's t- I mean, you know, you had boss. You got a boss you got to answer to. Right. You got to work with him. Yes, there are bad coaches. I'm in the league, there's bad coaches, guys who just don't know what they're doing. Plenty. That's with any profession, right? But uh, and so it's it's tough. So okay, now we got to have a relationship where I can approach you as a coach. Say, coach, why are, you know? 
can I talk to why or why are we doing some of these things or why, you know, what's your reasoning behind this? Okay. If I can understand the why a whole lot better, then I can get on board a lot better. And that's, that's the, I think that's a problem in the league or football or sports in general, especially with guys is, you know, you come in and it's my way. This is how we're doing things. And yes, you have to set the tone. That's right. But if you don't identify the why you're doing these things, people aren't going to get on board. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, then you have some dissension and then you have some division in the locker room. And that's, that's not going to lead to a win. What ultimately led to the end of your NFL career? Well, ruptured my patella tendon Thursday night game in Miami against Chicago. And we called the screen, middle screen up, up uh, Devon Best was getting the ball. And I had to shuck the D tackle, get up to the mic, which was Erlacher at the time. And it was non-contact, but I over-pursued him. When I got up to the second level, over-pursued him. He started running underneath. And I planted my left leg, and that's when ruptured my patella tendon. Kneecap came up into my quad, ah. and no, no more use of my left leg mm. for now. And that's really what kind of ended it. But I mean, I think it was to me. I look back on it now, and it's almost like God was like, "You're too much about yourself right now. You're coming into a marriage. I had a fiance, my wife. You know, we're coming into a marriage. You're too much about yourself. I was paying no attention to her. Football was running my life." And I need to make sure you're ready for this, right? I need to need to put some humility in this guy for a minute. That's a really wholesome way to look at it. I'm sure, I mean, at the moment, well, at the moment, obviously, you weren't thinking that. But it probably took a little while to come back around on that. What, what kind of helped you pick up that mindset? It seems like a position where a lot of people would go, you know what, it's all over, I'm doomed. But you, you took a really wholesome look at it. So, so how'd that happen? I mean, that didn't come right away. Right. <laughs> right. That of course was, not. That was me fighting. But that was, I, I didn't look at it as like, all right, this is part of God's plan necessarily. This was, because I still sit, spent the next year trying to get back in the league. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, granted, I had five, six, seven surgeries over the next year. Five of them on my knee alone, trying to get this stuff going. And... The thing was, is I was on the couch for most of that year, and my wife was the one taking care of me. Oh, wow. we, got, we got married uh, right after that season, and you know she was the one to take. I had to lean on her all of a sudden when I was the one who was heading up everything, but I had to lean on her, which caused forced us to be working together. She didn't dump you after the injury. No, that, that's no. love. That's what <laughs> that's that is. Yeah. Seriously. No. Yeah. yeah hey. I, <laughs> yeah. I mean it. Um, so what's been kind of walk us through that happened in 2010. It's been seven years. What's been going on in the life of Corey Proctor? What have you been up to? Seven years, man. Well, so it's, I was training, trying to come back. It didn't work. Right? I left the doors open, but we moved back to Texas. We were in New Jersey a little bit trying to train and get back. didn't work. So we came back here, bought a home, finished my degree, got that in psychology. Nice. Crazy interesting stuff. Oh, yeah. Social psych was my favorite mm -hmm. class. I mean, if anybody who hasn't. Go look into that stuff and why we behave the way we do. Yeah. Right? It's crazy. And then when you start understanding the why, again, right? You start understanding the why. You're like, all right, now I can identify it, and now I can start working around that. Did that help yeah. you get past your feelings of having your career ended? And was that some way to kind of help you understand about what happened? Oh. Or how you felt about it? May probably a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, really that was another, it was an, a work avenue I could pour into a little bit. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm like, all right, this is, gives me a little purpose for this time being. And <clears throat> it started working for a beverage company called Killcliffe right after that. So in a whole lot of gyms, making some friends, making almost a season, seasoning of sorts, talking to people and 
learning, learning how to sell myself. Right. But that started changing. I'm still with them right now, but I started changing a little bit when I started getting active in church and had a whole different experience there. And that's where my own perspective started changing. I started getting rid of, and, I, and I've never really had a victim mentality, but we can do it in a lot of different small ways, right? Where, you know, that, you know, that coach is against me and I'm not performing and I'm not doing things well because of X, Y, Z. And instead of me going and addressing that relationship and taking action towards that to better it, you know, I would go home and, and fight it it within myself and then I fight it at practice by ignoring what he didn't do doing it my way anyways right so that happens all over the mm -hmm. place so we can do it we can take this victim mentality in little different ways but that's really and I always had the right work ethic and good principles and values and, and that carried me a long ways but when I started going to church and had an experience there and start understanding kind of like all right our purpose and what we were created for that victim mentality starts shifting all around like getting flipped on a whole different level. So, all right, we got a problem, right? It talks about, not, not to get crazy Bible on you, but, you know, there's a verse in Proverbs, you got a problem with your brother, go to your brother, right? Take the problem to you head on. And let me talk to you if we got an issue with each other. And if we can't work it out, we get someone else to talk who get involved in it. And if that doesn't work, you go to the church is kind of what it talks about. But I'm like, how many times do we harbor that stuff? Like right. you say something, and I don't know what you quite meant by that, right? That happens all the time. The owner down in, in the Texans uses a figure of speech, and every, the world's blowing it up right now, right? You're like, you're calling me a, a prison or an inmate of the prison? Inmate, yeah. Right? Yeah. You're calling me an inmate all of a sudden? Stop that, right? Okay, maybe you shouldn't have used that term. Whatever, it's a bad time to use it. But you know he doesn't mean it like that. So let's stop this offensive um, victim mentality where like all of a sudden you're putting your garbage on me i'm like no no no. i'm gonna flip that around and be like i know you probably didn't mean it like that but like hey let's let's step this direction right we're on the same team here right right let's act like it and that was something i did want to ask a little bit about but before we get there um you are a god-fearing man uh, yeah i heard one of your speeches you definitely you kind of work that in you talk about the power of the huddle um and i know you mentioned it earlier but give me a little bit more on that what did, what does that mean the power of the huddle coming together Power of the huddle, it's, I mean, it's all about the group you hang with. Hmm. I mean, your destiny is directly tied to your group, right? If we're hanging around all the times, you guys influence me, I influence you. A hundred percent. So if you tell me, like, hey, let's go to the bar and we'll start banging drinks down, right, and, and talking to women, and I, I give in to that, right, you've just influenced me somehow. And like, all right, cool, and now we're wasting time getting drunk, hitting on women when I have a wife or I have another life at home that shouldn't be the case. Right. On the opposite end of that, all right, you tell me, like, hey, let's let's go get some work done. Let's make some progress happen. Hey, well, let's go listen to this dude's speech or go to this conference that's going to help us grow in some way. Your your purpose, your your drive is a whole lot different, and now you just influence me in a whole different way. Right? Now I'm like, okay, I could use that. I come, I come charged up from an event that we just hit up, or conference, whatever it might be, to build ourselves bigger. And I can take that home to my family, other friends, whatever. But that group elevates you to certain levels, right? And how they call you out. And especially, all right, maybe I am messing up. And you, I need you to call me out on that big time, right? Corey, quit, don't, even, don't even go down that path. Don't even take a step down it because that's, that's a path towards destruction, right? You don't want to get fired from your job. You don't want to have your wife question her, your faith to her, right? Don't do that, sure. Because that's that's those little steps start leading you further off the path, 
right? And I don't want to. I don't want to look at any garbage or look at. I mean, we're guys, right? You steer towards a yeah. woman's butt in a second, but <laughs> but the thing is, is when you start acting on it, all of a sudden you're like, you know, you, you need your brother to punch you in the right mouth to stop. It's a good it. friend, yeah, to to tell you, hey, you're doing the wrong thing. And yeah. I've heard I've heard you speak about how the different ways that you feel that God was pushing you in a certain direction without you even knowing it. I mean, you mentioned being being invited out for football, a, a decision that completely changed your life at the time. But at at that moment in time, it just felt like. Well, someone's just saying I would play football, and so I guess I'll I'll go do that. Do you have any advice for anyone who might not be able to recognize the little ways that they're being influenced and the ways that God might be in, uh, injecting Himself in, into their lives that they may not appreciate? How do you appreciate that in the moment, or can you only look back and say, "I, I clearly this is what was going on." It's it's tough in the moment for sure, but I think you have to constantly be evaluating what's going on. Right. So I, I come in here and I see what's going on with you guys and the questions you ask me or I step out of a situation and kind of play it over in my head. What happened? Good and bad. Right. What what were some things that he said that, you know, maybe I could touch on what was, you know, what was an action that happened in that moment that I can take away from that? And a lot of times he's trying to speak to us in those little moments. Right. He puts people on our path for a reason. And the mindset if you keep that more often than not you'll be a whole lot more productive so like, all right we're here today he put he put us on each other's path why did he do that and then you start figuring out that why again and you stop wasting a whole lot of time right now we have a instead of having a two-hour lunch now we're having a 30-minute conversation about what's going on in your life or my life now that we can really dig into each other and help each other out and all of a sudden you share a story with me that might impact me that's way way bigger and i take that home to my family or my friends, I'm like, dude, I just heard this crazy story from this guy yesterday who, you know, had a, had an issue with his wife or, or cancer or, you know, health problem or whatever his job. And I'm like, dude, this wasn't crazy. This reminded me straight of you. And this is the attitude you need to take towards that. So sorry, somebody, that was a lot. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's all good stuff. Uh, to, to shift gears a little bit here, since we're kind of, I hate to say we're running out of time, but we kind of are. Um, I wanted to ask about kind of, we're all about softball questions on the show, but every once in a while, I like to toss a curve. And you seem like you know what you're doing, so I'm curious if you, if you have any thoughts on this. Some things have been going on in the NFL lately. How often does that come up socially for you? Uh, I mean, it's got to every once in a while. Sometimes you're like, oh, you used to play in the NFL? Oh, man, what do you think about what's going on now? How does that, I mean, is that something that you come across like every day? Or all is the it, time. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Do you, have, <laughs> you have any thoughts? So what do you I mean, got? Oh, I, what's, what's specifically? The national anthem. National anthem. It's a big deal, I think, but like, I don't know. Yeah, you talk about being being together with people and people influencing each other and the power of the huddle. So when one guy does something different during the national anthem, where do you land on it? It's a communication problem, I think. Okay. Because I can't speak, right? I'm a white guy. I can't speak to a black guy or minority having uh, issues, mm-hmm. right? Someone looking at you sideways because you're black walking around a store and all of a sudden they're they're wanting to watch their store because they think you're going to steal something. Right? I can't speak to that. I haven't had those experiences. So that problem that gets brought up is something I need to listen to. Okay, but how you communicate a message is just as important as what the message is. Right. So I use this. The reason it's such a big deal is people look at the national anthem. People look at the flag and they see family members right see people in their lives i had two grandfathers that served in wars 
Okay. I, I see that and I get shook up because I have family that served this country, you know, good, bad, or the ugly. I mean, they served it and they died for this country. That's a huge thing. They put a big part of their lives. So the thing is, is the, the idea that got in my head, the thought that got in my head is when I, I see that, I see my dead grands or ancestors, right, who've been a part of that. If you're trying to talk to me and you're standing on my grandpa's grave, it hurts. I'm not going to have hear anything you have to tell me. So, and it could be fine. You could be, it's not meant to be that, right? That side has already voiced it. They're like, no, we don't mean to disrespect our military in any way. That's great. Totally understand that. I don't hear you. Right. Move out of the way. And, and let's talk. And that's what I'm saying. Move, get off my grandpa's yeah. grave. I know you don't mean to disrespect him. Get off it for one second. All right, now let's talk. Yeah. That's all it is. I think it's a reasonable approach. Yeah, I can get behind that. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to ask about, kind of a kind of a fun fact. Yeah, uh, you were a drummer yeah, at buddy. one point. I yeah, through this whole thing we haven't touched on music once. So how did that happen? How did you get into the drumming business? When when did that happen? <laughs> when in this business. whole thing, yeah, did you get into drumming? <laughs> I got in that was I started in band in school. I remember. How did I miss that in my show? Yeah, okay. I totally missed starting in band in school. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. You're getting old. Actually, started in one of my elementary schools that I hit up a lot. Oh wow. One of them, but uh, you know, they lined us up in a room. I remember the whole class, and there was one guy with a whole bunch of instruments. And all right, what do you want to play? I wanted to play saxophone. And I. It's funny. I did too. When I first went for band, I wanted to play saxophone. They told me no. You can't play sax. Jazz. Jazz. Yeah, the coolest uh, thing in the world, blues and jazz. That's oh, yeah, sure. I, and I just loved the the look of the instrument, the sound of the instrument. I was I was all about that. They said no, don't, it's an attractive don't play instrument. saxophone. Yeah. It made me play French horn, but so that's French what. And I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I loved I loved playing French horn, but I I always wish I would have learned to play sax. Right. Yeah, you just look cool. Put some shades on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's hard to look cool playing a French horn. <laughs> <laughs> you can still look cool being a drummer. Put your fist. Uh, in I know. Yeah. There you go. I know Rad. about it. Yeah. <laughs> Rad. Um, so yeah, well, you, so you picked a, you picked drums, I guess. What you went for? I didn't. They told me to. That was another direction, okay. thing, right? Like I couldn't make a sound on the saxophone on the reed. Right. So they're like, all right, we're gonna put you in percussion. So I sit there and bang on a snare. You can drum. make a sound all day long <laughs> banging on a on a snare drum, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that led to drum lessons, to playing on a kit and loving that and. Got here, and all of a sudden, Mark Colombo told me about his band in Chicago he was playing with, the Chatterheads. What did he play? Guitar. Okay, sure. Why yeah. not? I, for some reason, I thought he'd be bass, but I can get behind it. Chatterheads. All right. Yeah. He's, <laughs> <laughs> it's an East Coast term. Nobody else knows that. Yeah. But, uh, but yes, we started jamming around and having fun with it, and it turned Leonard played bass a little bit and joined the band, and we had a fourth guy that he went to high school with that elevated us. Again, the power of the group you're hanging with, right? And all of a sudden, some other guys would ask us to play at charity events. And the word spread like fire. And uh, another guy was like, hey, can you play our show at House of Blues? Okay, cool. And we did that. And all of a sudden, it was like on Jim Rome for ESPN. Oh, wow. And for those about to block, that's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just turned Fantastic. into this really cool thing. And you still drum? A little bit, music? Yeah, little a little bit. bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm tr you know, trying to, I'm working my Kill Cliff, my beverage company right now, and then pushing the speaking platform, wanting to share my story and, and wanting to, that takes up a whole lot of time, plus trying to balance your family. But, um, you know, so I get on the kid a little bit, but I miss it. Right. A lot. 
So what is next for Corey Proctor? I know you just rolled through, you know, Killcliffe, and, and are you ever going to pick up that sax? I mean, you're going to keep speaking. What's <laughs> what? Yeah, tell me about this beverage company. What do you got going on? Uh, well, I've been with these guys about three and a half years almost. Okay. And uh, Navy Seal started this up. Todd Ehrlich, great guy, and they're just they're in a ton of different gyms right now. It's a recovery beverage in in a lot of gyms, Lifetime Fitness, Powerhouse Gyms, a lot of CrossFit places, some specialty shops, Vitamin Shop, GNC. And pushing that, and I'm working that here in Texas, which has been great. That, to me, has been a seasoning uh, to learn how to sell myself and talk more to develop this speaking platform. And really what this has is, okay, we've always had these speaking opportunities from playing, right, and sharing your story. And I've talked to, I remember I went and talked to FedEx over in Irving about team play and working together and kind of some power of the huddle type principles and values and those have always come, but all of a sudden, the last two years, a big, a big reason is because of my faith. Is for it just came to me that that was impactful, that it held a lot, and for some reason, I'm like, all right, I want to share that. I want to share my faith. I want to share my testimony. I want to share my story. I want to share the, those values that came from it and the learning curve, learning tools or, or things that I took away from that so to hopefully have that moment right where I can tell you that and you say. I heard this thing, I heard about this guy, I heard this guy's story and what happened and some points, and it really sat on me. And then your buddy in your huddle, in your group, who has having an issue or what's happening in his life, you can deliver that same message to him, right? And it, all of a sudden, that's where that story really starts taking fire because we start affecting each other's lives in a positive way then. And now we elevate each other to a whole different level. So how do people find out more about you and your speaking and everything that you've got going on? So I post a lot of my social media right now. You can go to CoreyProctor.com is kind of under construction a little bit, but it points you to my Facebook, which is Facebook.com slash CoreyProctorOfficial, uh, Instagram at CoreyProctor, Twitter at CoreyProctor. I'm somewhat active on there. I got my other jobs too, but uh, you know I try to push out as much as I can. I just kind of put two tidbits, thoughts of the day, and, uh, and booking at CoreyProctor if you want to have me come speak to your groups, to your churches, to your uh, corporate events, a lot of, lot of uh, uh, conferences done that. Those are fun to do and really kind of use those to push my message and, and use my platform I was given. Well, shoot, Corey Proctor, thanks so much for sitting down with us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot.